1: This is
2: the Tom Hartman Program. Well, greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. I wanted to lay out for you this piece that I started working on last night. I kind of added pieces to it through the evening as Louise and I were watching an Old Cagney and Lacey. And Louise and I finished it up this morning. And published it over at HartmanReport.com. And it's titled, you know, Dear Republican Voter, What Did You Expect? Right? When Ted Nugent and the NRA and uh, the GOP told you that more guns in America would provide us with a safer, more less violent society. What did you expect, Republican voters? I mean, seriously, did you su- think that suddenly uh, every person in America was gonna turn into a, a marksman and, and uh, some kind of Wild West movie fantasy was gonna be the outcome? Really? You know, when Trump said that COVID was just like the flu at the same time that he was telling Bob Woodward that it was a killer, what did you expect? I mean, did, you know, when he pushed refusing to wear a mask like it was some sort of declaration of masculinity and openly encouraged states and cities to stay open in the face of this pandemic in order to give us herd uh, thinking. Did you really think it would keep a half a million Americans from dying? When Trump sent thousands of modern day brown shirts to storm the U.S. Capitol and try to kill Mike Pence and Nancy Pelosi so Trump could become the nation's first strongman dictator. What did you expect, Republicans? Did you really believe that American democracy was outdated, that our country would be better run by a a billionaire oligarch and his cronies instead of the will of the voters, seriously? When five Republican-appointed justices on the Supreme Court in 2010 in the Citizens United decision ruled that when billionaires and big corporations bribe politicians, that's no longer called a bribe, that's now called free speech and protected by the First Amendment. When that happened to Republican voters, what did you expect? Did you believe it was going to work out well for democracy in America? Has it ever? In any country? I mean, when Republican lobbyist Grover Norquist went on NPR and echoed the the line that Reagan, both Bushes, and even Trump have said that, you know, the big government's a dangerous thing. We need to shrink it down to where we can, small enough that we could drown it in the bathtub. When he said that, Republican voters, what did you expect? Did you really think that gutting environmental and banking protections was going to help us? That letting corporations dump more pollution into our air and water and poison our children was going to make America better? Did you really think that restricting access to Medicaid and unemployment benefits and disability assistance was going to improve this country? Seriously? Republican voters, when Donald Trump and Reagan and both Bushes told you that if we just showered billionaires with tax cuts and subsidies for our biggest corporations, like the $600 billion a year we give to the oil industry, that all that money is going to trickle down and help you out. Right? Did you really think those billionaires were gonna happily just pass their tax cuts along to you as a pay raise, Republican voters? Seriously? I mean, when Republican governors across the country told you, and not just Republican governors, but the think tanks too, that only for-profit electric companies can provide you with safe, reliable power. Those nonprofits that are owned by state and county and municipal governments, oh, those are those are terrible, right? That's government they don't have the profit motive. When they told you that, what did you expect? I mean, did you really think that Enron ripping people off or PG&E setting, you know, a chunk of California on fire was just some weird anomaly? Or that when the Texas power grid melted down because of a winter storm, just like they had just 10 years ago, that that was just like a fluke? Seriously? Republican voters, when Ronald Reagan and every Republican since since him told you that destroying labor unions was a good thing and would help American workers, really, seriously, what did you expect? Did you really think that no longer having organized workers, solidarity, representation against organized capital would somehow lift up American workers and cause CEOs to cut their own or keep their own pay reasonable? Seriously? Seriously? Republican voters, when George H.W. Bush told you that the nation needs to double down on Nixon's war on drugs and put more people in prison, particularly those black people who are sm- selling crack cocaine across the street from the White House. Remember when George Bush Sr. set that thing up? He set up a sale so that he could he could wave it, a, a bag of cocaine on TV. If you're old enough, you remember it well. It was a big deal. He, he held a national television uh, you know, press conference about it. Did you really think, Republican voters, that putting millions of black people in prison for decades, like Bush did, like he pitched with his Willie Horton ad, that that was somehow going to make America a better place to live? Really? Are you that racist? Republican voters, when Donald Trump tried to cut off food stamps to a million people in the middle of a pandemic, a policy that that, uh, Joe Biden literally just reversed, uh, I believe it was yesterday, When Donald Trump said that he was going to cut off those food stamps to force people back to work in the middle of a pandemic when there's 20 million missing jobs, what did you expect? When former oil industry CEOs George W. Bush and Dick Cheney told you that Iraq's Saddam Hussein, who, by the way, just coincidentally was sitting on the second largest oil reserve in the world, was plotting to kill America... When our own weapons inspector, Scott Ritter, and the U.N. weapons inspector, Hans Blick, were going on national telev- international television saying, this guy has no weapons. He doesn't represent a threat to anybody. But Bush and Cheney were pushing this really hard. Did you really expect that something good was going to come out of that? Seriously, Republican voters, did you think that America could conquer a country sell off its natural resources, and the people in that country would just be like, oh, this is nice. We're happy with this. Thank you very much. I mean, how'd that work out in Vietnam? When Wall Street billionaire Pete Peterson and his buddies in the GOP put up the debt clock and started saying, well, Social Security is just a Ponzi scheme. It's going to go broke. We need to turn it over to Wall Street bankers like Pete Peterson. What did you expect? Did you think that those bankers and the Republicans they own were actually going to help build a stronger safety, a social safety net for America? When Reagan's Interior Secretary, James Watt, Republican voters told you it's just fine to sell off federal lands for pennies on the dollar because Jesus is coming back and he's going to make all things new, what would you expect? For that matter, when Trump's Interior Secretary, a coal lobbyist for God's sake, said the same thing without invoking Jesus. Did you really expect it was going to help our public lands? Did you think it had nothing at all to do with these massive campaign contributions from the, you know, to the GOP? Seriously, Republican voters. I mean, it, it, I, I have a few more to share with you. I will do so after the break. And a point to make at the very end of this. But what's up with Republican voters? For 40 years, they have been buying these lies. Is it just race? Is racism enough to animate an entire political party? This is the Tom Hartman Program. Or do Republicans really believe that if everything is done for the billionaires, somehow that's gonna help, you know, Joe Republican? Seriously? as uh, Joyce is stacking up some calls here I'll, I'll just you know point out that I just I can't get it I mean I I used to debate this stuff with my dad and but he was an Eisenhower Republican he thought that social security was a good thing he thought that unions were a good thing he thought that there you know the high tax rate was a good thing he taught Louise double entry bookkeeping and uh, you know when we had this little business back in the early 70s and and he was like, you know, uh, there's there's good stuff that government can do. I just I just don't get it. It's amazing. I just don't get it. Uh, Diana in Preston, Idaho. Diana, you wanna go back to uh, the Second Amendment? Or I guess that was the first thing in my rant today, wasn't it? What's up, yes, Diana?
3: Yes. yes, it was. So, hi, Tom. I think, yeah, I think it was Monday's show, you had an intelligent-sounding male caller who called in about guns in the Second Amendment. He made the comment that if Jews had guns, they would have been able to defend themselves and not been led like sheep to the slaughter. It concerned me, you know, and it upset me a little, too, that that lie is still being spread. And I'd like yep. to suggest that he, yeah, and I would like to suggest that he delve a little deeper into the subject. If he can stand it, and he'll find that the self pity and the kind of literature that came out in the beginning seemed filled with a victim uh, like attitude. But eventually, during the 80s and the early 90s, the atmosphere starts shifting toward a recognition of the courage and the nobility of the people that miraculously survived. And I think. Oh, look at at the Warsaw
2: Uprising. I mean, it ultimately yeah. got put down, but and, and people had the people were using guns in the Warsaw Uprising as well.
3: Yeah, and and I think that you know anyone who delves deeper into the subject will will realize that they were not at all like lambs to the slaughter. And my opinion yeah. is that Jewish Jews with guns could not have stopped Hitler. Only concerned people from outside could have and eventually did stop Hitler. Inside, they had quite a few chances to stop him, and they chose not to. You know, in the old question that nagged historians and politicians and the people of the world about Germany, a highly developed and intelligent nation, at that time, Mani had more books than any other nation on the planet. How is it possible that it turned into a nation of criminals? How is it possible that the USA for the last five years has been evolving into a nation of criminals? And the two nations have much in common. But I think the overwhelming influence is the leaders, Hitler and Trump. And I think it was you who said on one of your shows, words are powerful, leaders matter. Incompetence mixed with arrogance. And the goons and the thugs and the racists that follow them, you know, and American companies remember, remember, American companies basically funded the Nazis, and money has an insidious way of making decent human beings behave in most insidious ways. Yeah, and, and
2: that's why. That's why Fritz Fritz Tyson wrote, you know, uh, an autobiography I paid Hitler uh, basically apologizing for it. Yeah, uh, when a country is sliding into fascism, the only way you can stop that, you can't stop that with guns. You can't rise up against the government. They'll just squash you, which is what Hitler did. The only way you can stop that within the country is internal politics, which Germany failed to do and we just succeeded in doing by dumping Trump. And but once that Transition is complete, and the country is a fascist country. It takes an external force to stop them. We'll be back. Welcome back, Tom Hartman, here with you to continue my rant. Uh, this is my open letter to Republican voters that I published this morning over at HartmanReport.com, which is you know free. You can get it in your email box every day for free, um, and uh, you yeah, know there it is. Anyhow. Uh, So, uh, dear Republican voter, right, when Republicans changed course in 1980 and threw in with the anti-abortion activists but promised that there would only be reasonable restrictions on abortion if you just went along with them, what'd you expect? How about Arkansas last week passing a law that will put a child who's impregnated by a rapist in prison if she tries to get an abortion? Or Texas, which is trying right now to give the death penalty to people who are impregnated as a result of rape or incest in Texas, to young women. I mean Is, is that what you expected? When Donald Trump, a dear Republican voter, encouraged violence at his, at his rallies, when he promoted racist slogans and policies, when he promised to pay the legal bills of, of people who became violent at his rallies, when he openly celebrated police, quote, roughing up the people they're supposed to protect and serve, what do you expect, Republican voters? Did you really think that was going to restrain the authoritarianism and racism of his followers and police? Really? When Trump and Fox News tried to characterize as thugs the literally millions of people in American streets protesting the murder of George Floyd and so many other unarmed black people, uh, particularly black men, what did you expect? Did you think that the cops would stop racist and violent policing without any sort of public pressure? without any accountability? When did that ever happen? When oil company shills Republican voters were all over the media telling us that global warming was a hoax, carbon dioxide's good for trees, don't you know? We need more of it. And for 40 years, Republican politicians echoed those lies and they still are, almost to a person. What did you expect? Did you really believe that burning all those fossil fuels and throwing all those poisons in the air would have no consequence? When during the last three presidential primaries, Republican candidates like Ron Paul argued that the best way to provide health care to Americans is to do away with all federal government health care programs. That'll cause people to stand on their own two feet, as Ron Paul said. What did you expect? When the party said that was that was their position. Did you really buy Congressman Paul's argument that back when he was a doctor, back in the day, he used to take payment in chickens? And we should use that as the inspiration for America's national health care system today? I mean, seriously, Republican voters, when you voted for Republicans while Education Secretary Betsy DeVos was actively gutting our public schools, promoting for-profit corporate schools and making a joke out of any kind of student debt relief, what did you expect? Did you actually believe the, the GOP had any interest whatsoever in building up our public schools and helping our teachers? I mean, when your Republican state legislators told you that they were, they, they were passing legislation to ensure election integrity, what did you expect? Did you really believe they were going to make sure everybody in America who's el- legally eligible to vote is going to have their vote counted? Did you assume they'd never end up blocking you, maybe by accident, from the voting rolls? Seriously. Did you expect Republicans who are somehow going, did you think that they were somehow going to do away with the 10 hour lines in neighborhoods that have really high proportions of registered Democrats? But everything is going to be fine for you? Did you believe them when they said voting by mail was dangerous and insecure? When we've been doing that in Oregon here for 20 years, Washington State, Idaho, Utah, excuse me, Utah, uh, Hawaii, and, and pretty much all of Western Europe for decades, for a generation, without any problems at all? And you, it, and you believed them that we should be worried about voting by mail? Really? You know, the simple fact, and I'm sure I'm missing some things here. Feel free to call in and tell me what I missed, and I can, I can always edit my article, in fact, and add them. The simple fact is that Republicans have been lying to voters like you, Republican voter. They have been lying to you for 40 years from Nixon's southern strategy and his war on drugs through Reagan's supply-side economics to Donald Trump's voter fraud, these are lies. And they're all lies to disguise the fact that the GOP has, ever since the Reagan revolution, been 100% the party of billionaires and big corporations, period, full stop. Those of you who have listened to this program for more than a few years, you know I, I only talk about it a couple times a year. I should probably talk about it more. But for the 18 years I have been doing this show, I have had a contest running. And it's very simple. If you can name any piece of legislation passed, you know, post 1980, after the Reagan revolution, if you can name a single piece of legislation that was originally written by a Republican, that was sponsored by a majority of Republicans in Congress, that was passed with majority Republican votes in the House and Senate, and that was signed into law by a Republican president. One piece of legislation whose principal beneficiary is the average American, instead of a billionaire or a corporation. I will give you an autographed copy of any one of my books you want, and I will inscribe it however you'd like. 18 years I've been running that contest, no one has won yet. You know, the last election, the 2020 election, when the Republicans lost the White House, the House and the Senate. What that says to me is that Americans, including Republican voters, are waking up to the fact that the, that the, the Republican voters have been the victims of a long con run by a group of right wing billionaires and big corporations that started in the 1970s and that seized control of our government in 1981. And Republican voters are starting to figure this out. They're starting to wake the hell up. And it's about time. And I'm telling you, if you're a Republican voter, if you bought any of these big lies in the past, the Democratic Party is here to help. Seriously. And, prog- and, and if you have a progressive bone in your body, you need to get inside the Democratic Party so that they can help even better and more aggressively and more actively. Because all these, this whole list of stuff that I just went through, this is what's at stake now. We have to reverse Reaganism if America is to survive. Otherwise it's off to Trumpism and that's the end of democracy. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. So what say you, especially Republican voters? Give me a shout, I'll pick up your calls after the break. It's the Tom Harbin University Book Club. Today we're reading from the crash of 2016. This is page 34. Prior to this, we've set up how conservatives saw the 60s as a time of great social chaos and the rise of Ralph Nader and Rachel Carlson and the uh, whole consumer and environmental movements as threats to profitability and business, and they had to do something about it. So, page 34. Louis F. Powell Jr. was just sitting down to breakfast in his suite at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City when he received a call from the White House. The year was 1971, more than 40 years since the last great crash. The 60s had ended and the Vietnam War had destroyed the Democratic Party, leaving Richard Nixon as President of the United States. And Nixon needed a favor. A thin, ascetic man with wispy hair and fragile features, Louis Powell had ancestral roots in America's first European settlement, Jamestown and a lifetime of participation in the law. He deeply loved his Richmond, Virginia home and the law practice he had there, which mostly consisted of defending corporate interests and wealthy Southern white men. He walked comfortably often in crepe-soled shoes, dressed as a Southern gentleman, and spoke so softly that people sometimes leaned forward to listen. But when he spoke, his words were precise, well-measured, and carefully considered. He was one of the most brilliant jurists of his day. And so it's no surprise that the Nixon White House was considering him for a seat on the Supreme Court, a job he turned down at first. But then when Nixon called him again at the Waldorf Astoria, he reluctantly accepted. As a Supreme Court justice, Lewis Powell was very much the moderate, and his legacy on the high court would reflect his balanced and authentic interpretation of the rule of law in America. However, just a few months before he was nominated by Nixon, Powell had written a memo to his good friend Eugene Sindor Jr., the director of the United States Chamber of Commerce at the time. And top Powell's most indelible mark on our nation was not to be his 15-year tenure as a Supreme Court Justice, but instead that memo, which served as a declaration of war, a war by the economic royalists against both democracy and what they saw as an overgrown middle class. It would be a final war, a bella omnium contra omnis, against everything the New Deal and the Great Society had accomplished— It wasn't until September 1972, 10 months after the Senate confirmed Powell, that the public first found out about the Powell Memo. The actual document had the word confidential stamped on it, a sign that Powell himself hoped it would never see daylight outside of the rarefied circles of his rich friends. By then, however, it had already found its way to the desks of CEOs all across the nation and was, with millions in corporate and billionaire money, already being turned into real actions, policies, and institutions. During its investigation into Powell as part of the nomination process, the FBI never found the memo, but investigative journalist Jack Anderson did, and he exposed it in a September 28, 1972 column titled, Powell's Lessons to Business Aired. Anderson wrote, shortly before his appointment to the Supreme Court, Justice Lewis F. Powell, Jr. urged business leaders in a confidential memo to use the courts as a social, economic, and political instrument. Pointing out that the memo wasn't discovered until after Powell was confirmed by the Senate, Anderson wrote, Senators never got a chance to ask Powell whether he might use his position on the Supreme Court to put his ideas into practice and to influence the court on behalf of business interests. This was an explosive charge being leveled at the nation's rookie Supreme Court justice, a man entrusted with interpreting our nation's laws with absolute impartiality. But Jack Anderson was no stranger to taking on American authority and no stranger to the consequences of his journalism. He'd exposed scandals from the Truman, Eisenhower, Nixon, and later the Reagan administrations. He was a true investigative journalist. In his report on the memo, Anderson wrote, Paul recommended a militant political action program ranging from the courts to the campuses. Paul's memo was both a direct response to Roosevelt's battle cry decades earlier and a response to the tumult of the 1960s. He wrote, quote, No thoughtful person can question that the American economic system is under broad attack, end quote. When Sindor and the Chamber received the Powell Memo, corporations were growing tired of their second-class status in America. Even though the previous 40 years had been a time of great growth and strength for the American economy and America's middle-class workers, and a time of sure and steady increases in profits for corporations, CEOs felt something was missing. If they could only find a way to wiggle back into the people's minds, who were just beginning to forget the royalists' previous exploits in the 1920s that had crashed our economy, then they could get their tax cuts back. They could trash the burdensome regulations that were keeping the air we breathe the water we drink and the food we eat safe and the banksters among them could inflate another massive economic bubble to make themselves all mind-bogglingly rich it could if done right be a return to the roaring 20s but how could they do this how could they convince americans to take another shot at what was widely considered a dangerous free market ideology and economic framework and that Americans once knew preceded every great crash and war. But Lewis Powell had an answer, and he reached out to the Chamber of Commerce, the hub of corporate power in America, with a strategy. As Powell wrote, strength lies in organization, in careful long-range planning and implementation, in consistency of action over an indefinite period of years, in the scale of financing available only through joint effort, and in the political power available only through unified action and national organizations. Thus, Powell said, the role of the National Chamber of Commerce is therefore vital. The crash of 2016. So what do you think, Kim? Have I missed some things in my list or have I gone over the top? Have I mischaracterized in any way in anything on my list Republican policies over the last 40 years. Now, I always say in the last 40 years, because even Nixon signed, I realize he tried to, he he actually did veto the Clean Water Act. They overrode his veto. He threatened to veto the EPA, but he signed them and he actually enforced them. And Dwight Eisenhower, these are the two Republican presidents, that, well, along with Jerry Ford, who just kind of you know, stumbled through a year or so and got us out of the Vietnam War. But you know, the two Republican presidents of any consequence, who both had eight-year terms, Dwight Eisenhower and Richard Nixon, they were not—I mean, Nixon was corrupt, and Eisenhower was just kind of, okay, let's maintain the status quo. But Eisenhower actually did a lot. He rebuilt America after World War II in big ways— education, the response to Sputnik in 1957, the space program, creating NASA. I mean, all this stuff. Republicans used to actually believe in America and want America to be stronger and better and support the American people. Even Richard Nixon did not declare war on labor unions. He didn't like them, but he didn't declare war on them like Reagan did. So am I missing something? Am I overstating anything? Dale in Springfield, Missouri. Hey, Dale, what's on your mind today?
1: Hello, Tom. Tom, you didn't miss a thing. My 75-year-old brother and my two aunts and uncles in Colorado absolutely believe everything you said in your rant. All the while, they're bragging about how how well Medicare and Social Security take care of them in their old age. They all believe the government is bad, but love its benefits. They believe that we need a businessman to run our country and that all immigrants are bad, even though our own grandparents were immigrants. They were white immigrants, of course. Okay. They also will tell you that cheating to win an election is okay if that's what it takes for their people to win. You didn't miss a thing that I heard of, but the fact that we have 75 million people that believe that is
2: awful scary. Dale, you have relatives who, as you said, who absolutely believe all those things. Um, what do you think it's going to take to wake them up?
1: You can't wake them up. I have been arguing with my brother since the election, and you can't yeah. wake him up. He, he still believes that Hillary ran a pedophile ring in a pizza parlor. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. They <sighs> absolutely believe this crap.
2: And that Dale's policies are
1: the beginning of socialism in our country.
2: Yeah. Okay. Dale, thank you. Thank you for sharing the, uh, your perspective and, and your story with us. I appreciate it. And, and thanks for listening to us on Sirius XM. Caleb over in Westboro, Pennsylvania, watching us on Facebook Live. Hey, Caleb, what's on your mind today? So, Tom,
4: I wanted to recommend that you consider having Nancy McLean as a guest on your program. She's been on the program a couple
2: of times. You can find my conversations with her over on our YouTube channel. She wrote a brilliant book, Democracy in Chains.
4: Democracy in Chains. Just having read that book, it backs up everything that you said in your rant this morning, just the way Dale said, and her... Discovery of the thought model that James Buchanan came up with at the University of Virginia that has been adopted by the Republicans is playing out in real time in front of her eyes. And um, yeah. so I'm glad that you have spoken to her and I hope you speak to her again because yeah, I think we, that, we I think that this, this business of enchaining democracy is happening in front of our eyes right now with these voter suppression laws that are happening at the state level all over the yep. country right now. And that is a manifestation of the whole idea of enchaining democracy in order to save it from
2: the rabble. Right. And the rabble being the people who want, you know, free public education and health care for all and just the basic stuff that every European takes for granted. Caleb, thank you for that. Yeah. And to everybody listening, if you have not read Nancy McLean's book, Democracy in Chains, it's really worth the read. That and the companion piece, I would say, is Jane Mayer's book, Dark Money. They're both they both came out five, six, seven years ago, something like that. But they're both brilliant. Martha in Detroit. Hey, Martha, what's on your mind?
5: Hi, um, I just wanted to say that we really have to fight for reproductive rights for women. And this is one of the the key things how they get women, especially older suburban white women to vote for the Republicans because there's with their ads against abortion and things like that and health care for women. I think that older women a lot of times forget what it's like to be young and worried you're pregnant all the time and go through all the different, um, cause I'm 62, right? When I was younger, it was a big concern for me. And as I got older, I get a little bit more, you know, like conservative in my um, views. So they forget about it. Young women need mm. that reproductive health care and their rights. And so maybe we can break through that way. Cause I see a lot of young women now they're like, they want to have a family. Most women, they want to have babies, things like that. So the idea of a baby being, you know, ripped from a woman's
2: womb it really upsets them. Yeah. I get it, Martha. And I get that there is opposition to abortion by people who actually are reasonable. In fact, there's a Democratic group, you know, an, an anti-abortion Democratic group, uh, you know, but it's this, you know, a, a real part of the Democratic Party they're not making crazy assertions like the Arkansas law that says that if a 13-year-old gets impregnated by a rapist, she goes to prison if she tries to get an abortion. And what we're looking at here, I think, is misogyny writ large. Kevin in Seattle. Hey, Kevin, what's up?
3: Hey, Tom.
4: Uh, love your analysis rants of uh, the long con. These uh, <clears throat> Republican con men have been running for so long. They pretty much invoke religion, and their conservative supporters just eat it up. They love that lie, and it's really sad but amazing to see it but i like your take
2: on it oh that's what i have to add to my article is when republicans told you they were the party of jesus and they never bothered to read matthew 25 you know it's like during the break i'll i'll go over to uh, hartmanreport.com and edit that in because that's a great point kevin and now you've got you know right-wing religious leaders who are preaching politics from the pulpit in defiance of the internal revenue service
4: well, they preach the Old Testament mostly, but uh, the IRS stuff seems to come from Jesus flipping the tables, and that's the highlight of it. But they haven't really read the Bible,
2: yeah. so. Yeah, no. I'm. What I'm. My point was, and thank you, Kevin, for the call. My point was, they they enjoy tax exempt status. They're subsidized by you and by me. We pay for their police service. We pay for their fire protection. We pay for the public roads that bring their parishioners, and yet they are preaching politics which the, the, the Internal Revenue Code says you can't do if you're being partisan. We'll be back. So the uh, corporate income tax at 21% is lower than it's ever been in my lifetime. Uh, corporate taxes accounted for one-third of all the federal government's income during the Eisenhower, Kennedy, Nixon, Johnson administrations, for example. The top tax rate is lower than it's been for, you know, a good chunk of my lifetime. And Joe Biden is talking about raising taxes on people who earn over $400,000 a year and using that money to reduce poverty in America. And uh, this is, of course, producing quite a bit of hysteria on, on on the right, on the line with us. Uh, representing that history, I suspect, and we'll see, is Larry Klayman, uh, who's been a guest on this program many times over the years, a lawyer, the chairman of Freedom Watch, the former chairman of Judicial Watch. The author, he has a new book out. It's called It Takes a Revolution, Forget the Scandal Industry. The website is freedomwatchusa.org, and you can tweet him at Larry E. Klayman, K-L-A-Y-M-A-N, or at Freedom Watch USA. Larry, welcome back to the program. It's been a long time since we've spoken. I hope all is well with you. And and tell me, why, you're, why do you want American families to continue to live in poverty in the richest country in, America, in the world?
6: Well, I don't, uh, Tom. You know that. And, you know, years ago when I was in Washington, a young lawyer, I remember a bumper sticker that said, Vote Democrat, it's easier than working. Okay, I listened to your monologue there, and, it, you know, you tried to be even handed. But on many to- in many ways, what you failed to point out is that hard work can get you ahead in this country, whether you're white, black, green, yellow, or blue. And that's what it's about. Now I don't disagree with you. That's not what it's there about. Larry, gre- there are, greedy Larry, there, are there, there are
2: people no hang on just a second, Larry. You, you you can't just like drop that and and then and then move on. There are people in America, more than half of Americans, who are working a forty hour week and living below the poverty level. How is that right? I don't know
6: about your statistic to begin with, but they certainly can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. They can get education. They They're can, working a 40-hour week. You yeah, have people are working 70-hour weeks. Well, what's, what's the alternative, Tom? You know, I respect you. I know you respect me last time I appeared with you, I accidentally I appeared on RT television. I didn't know it was Russian-owned and run by Putin, essentially. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, haven't, I, I, haven't I haven't been there for years. You're not in favor of a Soviet gulag-style state here where, this, where no, the government...
2: No, but what decides. I am are saying, Larry, work? is that is that we should be able to establish a minimum standard of living. We are the only developed country in the world where anybody literally anybody goes bankrupt because they got sick. And a half million Americans a year go bankrupt because they get sick. We are the only country in the world where you can end up $100,000 in debt just trying to go to college. We should, we should is, be taxing is, wealthy people and using that money to provide a floor for working people. Here's the problem. If the money
6: passes through the government, it'll be misused, it'll be squandered, it'll be stolen they tried that in the soviet union money never got to this people. is not the apparatchiks the apparatchiks lived high on the hog and the people got crumbs under
2: mark which has failed they, that's what's happened stop. i uh, you could you could you could set aside the whole straw man argument the whole red herring thing here i am not advocating soviet-style yeah, marxism red red or, or any kind of Marxism. Accurate. What I what I am telling you is that every uh, there are 34 countries that make up the Organization of Economic and Cooperation and Development, the OECD. The 34 richest countries in the world. The poorest of them is Costa Rica. Of those 34 countries, we have the highest level of infant mortality of those 34 countries. We have the highest level of maternal deaths. We have the highest level of deep poverty. And we are the only one of those 34 countries that does not use tax dollars from wealthy people to provide healthcare and education as a right to all their citizens. What is, what, how does that make us, I, I, I don't even know the question. Beyond be to say, how can you possibly justify Tom, that?
6: Tom, in this country, if you wanna to go to college, you can get a loan very easily. In fact, it's never paid back. The government never seeks to get its money paid back. And in any event, Biden, who is now the tool of the socialists and communist, is going to relieve them of any liability on that score. So you can go to college here if you want to, number one. Number two, what I'm saying is the government is not the way to improve things. That's all. Things, yes, can always get better. That's for sure. They can get better. And, you know, in my book, It Takes a Revolution, I I, I hope you get a chance to read it. I'm sure you'll agree with a lot of it. You know, what we have is a justice system that doesn't represent any people in this country. It is completely broken apart, particularly on the federal level. Jefferson predicted that we would reach a revolutionary state because federal judges are unelected, unaccountable to the people. So you can't resolve your differences in court anymore because they represent themselves and but the american people can rise up and yes i'm committed to making things better but i'm not going to tear the country down and i'm not saying you have this agenda but many people on the left have the agenda of destroying this country taking it over and then turning it into a communist state and larry we've been trying to share my, this ever, ever, my for dead 40 body years. will that ever happen
2: yeah Excuse mine me? too I'm not'm I'm not, I'm not a fan of communism. come on they, or at least the way that it was it was uh, you know communism works in in a kibbutz, right with a hundred people, but you, you can't do it at, at the level of a nation state. It's never been successful. But that said, I'm not you know I'm not promoting the Soviet Union but, or, or for that matter. Communist capitalism, like like uh, communist China is is practicing. But but again, you're throwing out red herrings here, Larry. You have had you, and by you, I'm talking about the Republican Party, conservatives in general, people you know that that you would consider yourself part of that tribe. You guys have had forty a years. Republican, Tom.
6: The Republican okay, Party fine. dead. I don't. don't Cons- Let's say conservative. No.
2: Okay, I, I I can't disagree yeah. with you on that, Larry. But you know, conservatives have had forty years. The Reagan Revolution was all about ending the era of big government. Bill Clinton even proclaimed the era of big government was over. Now, now you and I both have some concerns about judicial review and about some of the ways that our government has been run. And I I you know I I I, I still remember well when you busted Dick Cheney for for trying to uh, you know sell the yeah. oil in Iraq. You know, even before the war was started, I mean, that was just That's a crime. And, and, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, there are More. times when when when, you know, things are really, really wrong with government. But but you're saying that if we're not going to do what 33 other OECD do, countries do and say, OK, we're going to collectively make sure through the instrument of government, which is us, these are all democracies, that is us, that everybody has access to healthcare and education without having to go into debt. If we're not gonna do that, you know, the Reagan answer was, well, you know, in fact, Reagan passed this law in 1986, I think it was, that if you show up at an emergency room in a hospital, they have to take you in. Prior to that, they didn't have to take you in. That, you know, that was the big conservative solution to the problem of medical services. And, and you're saying, oh, and if you want to go to college, just go into debt. I don't see that working, Larry. I see, you know, a trillion and a half dollars worth of student debt and a half million people a year having their families utterly destroyed by bankruptcy because somebody got sick. Larry, we have a minute until we're going to hit our hard. No, no, no. no. Look,
6: uh, your objective is a noble one, Tom, but I'm saying the government's not the vehicle. You know, Reagan also used. Well, to tell say me how it's worked he, he in correct. any
2: other country in the world the it, way that you're talking about. Re-
6: Reagan also used to say the scariest words in the English language are "Hi, I'm here from the government and here to help you." The government can't do it. You know, I've worked in government. I've worked. in So, the Justice are, are you, the Justice are you trying to turn us into top.
2: Somalia? The are you trying to people turn people us in into government into, come into
6: work? They read a newspaper, or at least now the internet, and, and eat a donut for the first two hours. You know, it's, they get, they're fat and happy. So, Frankly, they're Larry, incompetent.
2: please identify a country that is your role model.
6: There is no one yet, but there are some that are better than others. So, okay? so what you're proposing this con- this has country, never successfully
2: country, worked anywhere in the world?
6: Without regard to our justice system, which is one of the worst in the world, this country is better than other countries, generally speaking.
2: Well, I, I think the citizens of most countries think that of their countries. But Okay, they Larry Clayman, totally he's got a new book out, It Takes a Revolution, Forget the Scandal Industry. FreedomWatchUSA.org is the website. You can tweet him at Larry E. Klayman and FreedomWatchUSA. Larry, thanks for dropping by. It's always good talking thanks, to you. God bless you. Bye. Thank you. Back at you, brother. Bye-bye. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I don't know where that brother came from. <laughs> We'll be right back with your calls right after this. <laughs> Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. Taxes. Health care. Education. Guns. What do we do about all this? John in Minneapolis. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? uh...
7: yes uh... you know we've been gaslighted for years and i'm glad that that you do this work i i couldn't do it it's just annoying the same uh... recycled arguments the straw men uh... you know all of that i'm through with it i want to you know get rid of the filibuster or modify it get hr one get hr four and you know move past this uh, get the george floyd act passed Uh, you know, we need to steamroll the other way. You know, we need a muscular uh, movement of progressives and moderates and other people, because, you know, I've known people that have lived through uh, World War II, uh, were in the French underground. And, you know, it can happen here. Now, Germany was much weaker than we were in terms of a democracy. But, you know, it can happen. And there's a whole industry of talk show people and all kinds of uh, think tanks and the Republican Party itself that extracts value out of this, while the rest of us work our butts off and make it all happen. And, you know, I think there's a lot of rich people that secretly, you know, they, they don't really care because their needs will be met no matter what. We need democracy democracy and more of it that's what we need that's all i that's my rant but i'm glad that you take on all of these people because (laughs) i I just i'm tired of it really tired of it i think
2: i thought that was an extraordinarily telling moment uh, toward the end there with larry john because i've i've asked libertarians this question many times on this program and and in fact the 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 big name libertarians refuse to come on anymore and, and and debate it with me because i'll just simply ask them the question Please name one country in the 7,000-year recorded history of, you know, the modern Western civilization, the modern human race, uh, Eastern civilization as well, Uh, name one country where libertarianism has worked. And they can't. And and I asked one country where, where, go ahead. I I can tell you some countries
7: where it failed when the Chicago boys went down to Chile. I knew somebody who
8: lived through that.
7: Um, you know, South America, in, in uh, Asia, and, uh, you know, there, there are places in the world w- uh, that are living through this right now. Brazil is a good case. Is that what, what you want? No, yeah, we want exactly. democracy. That's what we fought for. That's the American experiment. That's what my, my father and my father-in-law uh, nearly died for and served their whole life. Uh, let's get real here. This is tired, stupid kind of things. And you know what? It's probably going to happen more in liberal uh, cities like my own or in Boulder, Colorado, because we can't no longer live in our own little liberal ghetto and, you know, appoint our, our Or, you know, like Ilhan Omar or, you know, whoever, Ocasio-Cortez. No, this is a structural issue. And there's other elements besides that, too, but they've created a culture of hate and violence. And for what? They're, I mean, we're, we're, we're the richest country in the world, but we won't be if they continue, because, of course, they're destroying the economy, too. You know, they're, yeah. they're actually... Yeah. Well, outside of that, for, for that the very, written, very rich. But yeah. But, you've yeah, re- yeah, but about j- it. yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. No,
2: <laughs> no I, was just, I was just... I'm, I'm just... I've got to move, I'm, I need to move along to another caller, John. But you're, as always, you're, you're t- completely eloquent on these topics. Thank you so much. Tim in Madawan, Michigan. Hey, Tim, what's up?
9: Hi, how are you doing? Listen, when Clayman said that no one really has to pay back their student loans, let me tell you something. When I became disabled, they <laughs> took it right out of my Social Security, and I owed oh 1900 God. bucks, and they got 6000 And my question is, do you know if Tim McVeigh voted, and if he did, how did he vote?
2: I have no idea. I don't know. I'm sorry. Well, that, that That's the sort of thing you might be able to find with a search engine, Tim, but uh, I just don't, you know. Well, I don't, that, I don't have the
9: computer because I don't, I want something that's got a fiction and non-fiction
2: section. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that is a problem with the internet these days. I mean, it's, it's called it's a very, library. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a yeah. mile away. <laughs> yeah. Uh, libraries are great socialist institutions. <laughs> yeah, they, did uh, for, uh,
9: they did that for uh, my um, back child support too, and they fee you to death. My contract yeah. for the loan said twenty five percent is all they can go up to for uh, interest and uh, and penalties, but they fee you to death.
2: Yeah, yeah. The federal government will take your student uh, loan. Eh? They're not going. You do have to pay. Even it, though, they're though absolutely I was right.
9: disabled. Even though I was disabled and Upton was in charge of the education, and he turned me down for that.
2: I totally get it. Tim, thank you very much for the call. Dan in Chicago. Hey, Dan. What's up?
8: Yeah, I want to give you kudos for the way you handled that uh, guy from uh, USA Freedom or whatever the place is. Yeah, Larry. Uh, if they took if this ever if they ever got their way here what i would i think would happen at the, uh, the very least you'd create utter chaos and then there would be a strong man rise up similar to what happened in soviet russia after it collapsed we remember the united states and Brit- and uh, european banking structure demanded what they were calling the fast track toward privatization and those people didn't have any experience at doing the only people who had any experience were the criminals that were in the part of the, the soviet underground it was a chaotic mess and and The rise of Putin, and it's hard to believe but A lot of Russians feel that they're better off with a Putin than they were with the chaotic mess that happened between 1992 and 1998. And I, th- I would fear that would be happening here. And when you talk about oh, you asked him for well, that's what country. Trump was
2: selling, what? oligarchy. That's what Donald yes, Trump was yes, selling. Exactly. He was selling yeah. oligarchy. Let's let's have a you know a bunch of criminal oligarchs run the country.
8: Yep, and and when you asked him about the country, he couldn't come up with a country. For a while, the Cato Institute, which is into that stuff very heavily, they were talking about Pinochet's Chile. Now, he didn't have the nerve to say that to you, because, of, yeah, all you got to do is kill 70,000 people in a country with about 40 million people and, and, and repress everybody and have a poverty level going up to 50% from 20%, and that would be their ideal because business was free to do anything it wanted.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and and anybody who stood up to Pinochet, they got vanished. Whether they got thrown out of a helicopter over the ocean, or whether they yes they got the buried. Uh, so, you know, I mean, they're still looking gonna, for the mass graves. He wasn't going to
8: mention that model, but if you, I remember the Cato people were all excited when Pinochet took over and threw out the socialists, and uh, then uh, they sent these bunch of Chicago school e- e- economics people down there to right. advise them, and they they did some horrible things down there. And a great oh yeah, there's
2: there. this. The whole thing was based on Milton Friedmanism. It's absolutely. Thank you. Well said. Ami in uh, New Orleans, Louisiana. Hey, Ami, what's up?
0: Hi. My thing is when I hear him saying government involvement, we shouldn't have government involvement. First of all, we, the people, we are and we make up what the government is. The problem Mm -hmm. for me is that we select Candidates that's not conducive to our well-being on a whole. And since we experienced this great wave of uh, tribalism, we can't see the big picture. We just can't. Because our economy contributes to the subsidies for these big contractors, military contractors, and stuff like that. And so we're not being vocal on saying, okay, we don't want to spend the money there. We don't want to do Mm. this. I'm just saying we, the people. Government is very important because we're the one that that creates government.
2: Yeah, those are the first three words of the Constitution.
0: Yes, sir. Thank you.
2: Well, thank you, Ami. Thank you. Thank you for your considerate words and for your affirmation. And I I completely agree with you. And this is the thing that Reagan tried to get us to forget, is that government is us. Government is not some distant remote force. It can become that. That's what happened in the Soviet Union. And increasingly, that's what's been happening in some parts of the United States. And that's what Georgia, for example, wants to do by making it impossible for people or harder for people to vote. But at, uh, American democracy is based on the premise that we, the people, run the government, that, that the, the legitimacy of the government comes from the consent of the governed, to, to quote the Declaration of Independence. Ami, thank you so much. It's great to hear from you. Thank you for watching Free Speech TV. And welcome back to our Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading From Devil's Bargain by Joshua Green, the subtitle Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Storming of the Presidency. This is from the afterword, the very last chapter. It's titled Kali Yuga, which in Hinduism is when the earth goes into a phase of destruction. In the shell-shocked aftermath of the election, President Obama, looking shaken, appeared in the White House Rose Garden to deliver public remarks intended to project a sense of calm, a sense, really, that the basic stability of our country remained intact. Sun is up, Obama said. I know everybody had a long night. I did as well. Had a chance to talk to President-elect Trump last night about 3.30 in the morning, I think it was, to congratulate him on winning the election, end of quote. The next day, when the two men appeared together in the Oval Office, it felt as if the world had slipped through the looking glass. Trump quickly named Bannon his chief White House strategist. Republicans controlled every branch of government. But Trump's ability to defy every political norm, anything seemed possible. Who could argue otherwise after what had just transpired? And yet, within days of his inauguration, Trump's White House was plunged into chaos and scandal, from which it has not recovered and may never. Bannon, the imaginative reconceiver of U.S. politics, hung streams of paper listing Trump's promises from the walls of his West Wing office. His strategy, as always, was to launch furious attacks, this time to, quote, shock the system, end quote, and rapidly reorient the federal government in a more nationalist direction. He called this, with what I took to be intentional irony, a shock and awe approach to asserting Trump's power. But Trump's flurry of activity quickly ran into problems. There was his executive order sprung a week after his inauguration, banning immigrants from seven majority Muslim countries, which set off nationwide protests and was blocked by the courts. His firing two weeks later of National Security Director Michael Flynn for contacts with the Russians, the collapse of his first major legislative initiative, a bill to repeal Obamacare, His firing of FBI Director James Comey and the swift descent of the West Wing into a viper's nest of backstabbing and leaks. This quick turn toward a crack-up was hardly unforeseeable or even altogether surprising, but it contrasted sharply with the success of a candidate who had dominated his opponents, shaped news coverage, and shown himself to be all but impervious to the forces that overwhelm other politicians. Bannon, whose wild gambits in the campaign had invariably paid off, seemed to run out of magic tricks when Hillary Clinton was no longer a target. The government wasn't as malleable to Trump and Bannon's aggressions as the Republican Party and the cable news channels had been, and they found themselves consistently thwarted and undermined by the courts, by right-wing hardliners in Congress, by their own inexperience and Trump's errant tweets, and by the bureaucracy they were now overseeing. The crises these failures precipitated in the White House cost Bannon much of his influence and soon threatened Trump's presidency. While still early in his term, the possibilities Trump's most ardent supporters once imagined for his presidency already seem to be mostly foreclosed. I think there are three main reasons why Trump's administration has so quickly fallen into disorder and confusion. Number one, Trump thought being president was about asserting dominance. Just after he'd locked up the GOP nominations, Trump said something to me that crystallized his view of politics and explains, to my mind, much of his subsequent difficulties. Quote, I deal with people that are very extraordinarily talented people, he told me. I deal with Steve Wynn. I deal with Carl Icahn. I deal with killers that blow these politicians away. It's not even the same category. This, he meant politics. This is a category that's like 19 levels lower. You understand what I'm saying? Brilliant killers. Trump was equating politics with business and the presidency with the job of being a big shot CEO, a killer. He filled the upper ranks of his administration with people of a similar mindset, Gary Cohn, Wilbur Ross, Steve Bannon, aggressive, domineering men accustomed to getting their way by dint of their position. None had government experience, nor did many others in the West Wing. So none anticipated the problems this approach to governing would cause. Trump's self-conception as the all-powerful apprentice boss blinded him to a fundamental truth of the modern presidency, that the president needs Congress more than the Congress needs the president. Trump's domineering instincts served him poorly, as most members of Congress are secure in their jobs and accountable mainly to their own constituents. And it backfired disastrously when Trump fired Comey after he refused to submit to a pledge of loyalty to his boss. Number two, Trump ran against the Republican Party, Wall Street, and Paul Ryan But then took up their agenda. Populists often struggle to govern, but Trump scarcely attempted to lead the populist revolution that he promised. In May, he told me he would transform the Republican Party into a workers' party. But while he kept voicing populist siblings, the legislative agenda he took up was the standard conservative fare pushed by Paul Ryan. During the GOP primary, Trump has shrewdly sensed its weak point. Ryan's desire to finance tax cuts for the rich by cutting programs like Social Security and Medicaid armed the party's white, blue-collar base. Trump told me he'd made this point to Ryan directly. He said, quote, there's no way a Republican is going to beat a Democrat when the Republican is saying, we're going to cut your Social Security, and the Democrat is saying, we're going to keep it and give you more. The book is Devil's Bargain by Joshua Green.